Welcome to this week's edition of the Pete Mazzetti Show. I'm your host, Pete Mazzetti. My guest this evening is Eric Hammerling, who's the Executive Director for the Connecticut Forest and Park Association. Eric, welcome. How are you, my friend? I'm doing great. Uh, so glad to be with you, Pete. You too. You too. It's been a while, pal. What's new? Hey, um, boy, where do, where do I begin? Do you, yeah, do you no want kidding. to hear about uh, forests, parks, trails, you, you name it, but uh, yeah, we're busy start, at CFPA. Let's start about, before we get started, let's start with exactly what the CFPA is and what you guys do. Sure. Yeah, the Connecticut Forest and Park Association is actually the um, oldest conservation organization in Connecticut. We're established in 1895, uh, now 126 years ago. And at the time, there were no state parks and no state forests. There were no blue blazed hiking trails. Um, but there was an organization with an idea um, to try to get those places established around the state. And I, I like to say just, you know, you're welcome. <laughs> but obviously, those, those great ideas have borne amazing fruit. We now have 110 state parks, uh, 32 state forests, and almost 900 miles of blue blazed hiking trails all around the state. And those are all things that um, you know my predecessors at CFPA worked on and we continue working on today to try to make sure there are amazing places outdoors for people to connect uh, and protect. Absolutely. Now, how long have you been with CFPA? I have been the executive director since 2008. Uh, okay. Previous to that, I was with the Farmington River Watershed Association and have been working on, you know, in nonprofits uh, to, to conserve um, forests, parks, trails, uh, wildlife for my entire career. So this is a passion for me. Nice. Now, Eric, tell us a little bit about how the pandemic has affected exactly what you guys do at CFPA. Yeah, well, this last year, you know, we, we uh, throughout the year, kept on talking about, okay, well, right, when, when life hands you lemons, you, you make, make lemonade. We, right. we had to really uh, be creative. And so, you know, as an example, uh, one thing that we do every year uh, since 1993 is we host Connecticut Trails Day. Right. Uh, and tra Trails Day always happens the first weekend in June. Uh, on a typical year, there would be 200 to 250 events happening statewide. Okay. Um, but as you remember, June last year was not a great time to be encouraging gatherings of people and all of that. You know, typically, uh, you know, 6,000 people or so will participate in Trails Day events. So we had to get creative. And, and what we decided to do last year was to make uh, Trails Day a DIY, a, a do-it-yourself event sure. where uh, we provide lots of information on places where people could go to uh, have a nice walk or uh, ride or run or paddle. Right. And, uh, you know, with all that information, we would encourage people to get outdoors. We did lots of fun videos um, to kind of show if we were uh, on an event together, what we would be doing and uh, we kind of uh, put out a lot of information that way. We know a lot of people uh, used it and enjoyed it. Uh, but this year, we are sensing that things might be a little bit different. But that's just you know one example of uh, how we needed to be nimble and creative and um, make things work. Now, how do we think Trails Day is going to look this year? I think Trails Day is going to um, be really exciting once again. You know, we're 
uh, going to be having in-person events. Uh, you know, this is the first weekend in June, so the expectation is that most people would have had the opportunity to be uh, vaccinated by that time. Uh, that said, we're still encouraging people to be wearing masks uh, and be socially distanced at our events, and they're uh, limited to no more than 15 people participating in any event. So, you know, we are, uh, we want to do things safe. Uh, we want to be respectful. We want to get people outdoors, but we want to make sure that um, people not only have a great time, but aren't uh, afraid of, you know, the, the lingering things that may be with us um, uh, with coronavirus. So, um, you know, but we will be uh, returning to the outdoors with people and we're very excited about it. Now let's talk about tra the trails aspect of things as far as the, I understand there's been a boom in trail usage over the last year. Why is that? Yeah, well, as, as you know, with so many indoor options closed right. uh, and people feeling really uh, edgy and anxious indoors, right. uh, to have places to go outdoors has been absolutely critical for uh, not just physical health, but mental health. Right. Um, and uh, there have been a number of different uh, projections made um, on how much trail use increased this last year. But the, the two that I tend to hang my hat on are, you know, what the Department of Energy and Environmental Protection, DEEP, Mm -hmm. said was there, um, you know, increase in trail use on state lands this last year. They estimate that it increased by about 50% over the previous year. Okay. Um, and there's also uh, the, the Yukon has a group called the Connecticut Trail Census that actually um, has counters on various trails around the state to um, see how many people are physically on the trail. So it's very scientific. And they documented a 38% increase um, on, you know, their trails, the, the 15 trails that they monitor across the state. But, but that said, some of those trails increased by almost 200%. So, you know, there were just a ton of people getting outdoors. Um, we do know that some of those studies also told us some important things to know, such as um, about half of the people who are getting outdoors we're doing it between uh, one and five o'clock in the afternoon on the weekend. Okay. So it's not just a lot of people were getting outdoors, but if you wanted to avoid the crowds, uh, it, people started getting uh, better and better about this. Is you know, if you want to avoid crowds, don't go out during those you know highest volume times. Right. Um, and it's things like that that we learned from the Yukon Trail Census that I think is really useful and made it safer and safer for people to get outdoors. Absolutely, absolutely. Hey, before I forget, I actually had a mutual friend of ours on with me not long ago, and that was Commissioner Dykes from the DEP. What a wonderful person she is. She's amazing. She's like really her. smart. Uh, she is, uh, you know, I, I just can't even imagine all the different things that cross her desk in a typical day. Uh, exactly. But, you know, the fact that, uh, deep is not just, uh, you know, parks and forests and those things that are relatively easy to um, imagine, though right. not uh, easy to manage well, um, but she also has to deal with the energy policy and I implementing uh, waste strategies and making sure that we have clean air quality and dealing with all the different aspects of 
climate. Um, so yeah, that's a that's a challenging job, and Absolutely. she's doing a really nice job um, as well as anyone could do. Honestly, under the yeah. circumstances, it is it is tough. Uh, so we're really pleased uh, to you know partner with the commissioner on a number of different things and. Um, you know, there are just some outstanding people at, at Deep that we, we work with um, all the time right. and are, are really proud of that relationship. Absolutely, absolutely. So last time we were, you and I were together, you were still working remotely. Have your offices opened yet or no? So we're still primarily working remotely. We have, uh, you know, in our uh, headquarters in, uh, in the Rockfall section of, of Middlefield, sure. Um, we have an office manager, uh, Terry, who goes into the office every day because someone needs to, you know, be there to look after the building and yep. take care of the mail and kind of keep things moving. But most of uh, the rest of our staff work uh, almost entirely remotely. Um, but that that will be changing a little bit, uh, you know, as things start uh, opening up again. Um, you know, we have a community room that uh, on a typical year would uh, support meetings by about 60 different nonprofit organizations. Okay. Um, and, but again, until things are uh, safer, right. we're not going to reopen that space, but we, we hope to do that relatively soon. So ho hopefully by the end of the summer, uh, we'll be you know, reopening the office and reopening our com community room. Uh, all subject to change, but I, I'm uh, I'm positive enough to say it on your show, Pete. Absolutely. Now, Eric, can you tell me, is it possible for the trails to be overused? You know, that's a great question because um, that's that it, it, yes is is the the short answer. Okay. Um, but just to add a little bit to that, you know, the more people who are on the trails, uh, the the more. You know, basic wear and tear there is uh, of the footpath, right. especially if people are going out during, you know, right after uh, uh, wet weather. You know, you'll you'll see some of the erosion damage that can that can occur. But the the one thing that we've been hearing an awful lot about uh, that really does concern us is, you know, there has been an increase in both uh, trash and uh, graffiti and uh, you know other defacing of. Uh, you know, outdoor kiosks and, uh, you know, information for trail users. Um, you know, some of that is we totally understand that people are, you know, pent up, uh, don't have a lot of things to do, have extra time on their hands, and maybe that leads to a little extra mischief. But, you know, it is unfortunate that uh, that does take away from the experience of others. So we, we encourage people to, you know, use their best um, etiquette, say trail etiquette when, when they're uh, outdoors and recreating. You know, you always want to, if you bring something in, food uh, or, or, you know, whatever, take it out with you. Um, we uh, appreciate if you're, you know, out on a trail with your pets that you are cleaning up after them. But please don't leave, uh, you know, doggy bags full of stuff uh, for right. people to discover. Take it out with you. So, you know, all those types of things. And I, I think as people use uh, trails more and get more familiar with common courtesies like that, it'll be a better experience for everyone. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, as far as Trails Day in June, is it gonna be virtual this year and do you need people to help and volunteer? So, you know, we are still, if, if people are interested in leading Trails Day events, 
Okay. We're still open for people to register events. So, you know, if you're a land trust if, or if you're uh, not affiliated with an organization, but just have a place that you want to share with people. Right. You know, as I mentioned, we will be limiting uh, the number of people who can attend events to 15, yeah. uh, but we will be going ahead with Trails Day. Um, and we are, you know, really uh, thankful to have so many people who are willing to be leaders who want to share their experience with the outdoors with others. And we, we find that having leaders for Trails Day events um, really makes a huge difference because uh, it, it allows people to share their passion right. um, with a place which is infectious. And it also allows people who might be a little bit tentative about going out and exploring a place on their own to have the comfort of going with someone who knows it really well and right. can uh, you know, make that an, an easy place to uh, to get acquainted with. So we're, you know, really um, hoping that there are going to be, you know, there probably will not be 250 events this year, uh, because I know that some people are not um, feeling quite safe enough to lead events. Um, but we expect to have perhaps 100 um, and lots of options for people to get outdoors. Absolutely. And what I noticed, especially last summer is the Parks like Hamanasset and Rocky Neck filled up a lot because of everybody, the weather being nice and everybody wanting to get outside. Yeah, th there were about, uh, you know, of the 110 parks, about a quarter of them, it's, uh, and, you know, we kind of looked at this, um, would close due to capacity reasons right. almost every weekend. <laughs> And uh, I, first of all, that says something really good about the state parks and in terms of how much people value them and want Absolutely. To, to be in them. Um, but you know, just like the uh, stresses that you know, we see on trails when there are more users, that puts stress on parks as well. So I, I would just encourage people who are going to state parks and you see someone either at the gate waving you through to say, hey, you don't, you know, you don't have to pay because you're a Connecticut resident and you're, you know, you paid uh, as part of your regist registration to support the passport to the parks, come on in. Right. Uh, do know that the people who are maintaining state parks are uh, on the front lines. They are seeing a lot of different people. They are masked. They are, um, this last year, you know, Deep had to spend something like $200,000 just on PPE to keep their uh, employees safe. Right. So, you know, just know that there are a lot of heroes out there making sure that you're having a great time at the park. And that the um, the fact that they have reduced parking and are closing a bit more um, is, you know, both on one side, it's because people love parks and are getting out to them. But on the other side, you know, DEEP is trying to make sure that people who go to parks are safe. So they're, you know, that's why they've imposed those uh, those limits on visitation as well. Right. And what 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 my what our viewers and listeners don't know is because where I am down on the shoreline, I'm between Hamanasset and Rocky Neck. Yeah, and those are the two most visited of the state parks. Uh, Hamanasset, uh, you know, just just like we saw an increase in people coming out uh, to trails this last year. Um, I, I heard through October of this past year, they they did a comparison to last October and how many visitors came to Hamanasset, and they said, well, uh, the previous year about 2.2 million people came to Hammond Asset, which is, you know, again, more than any other state park. Um, 
But uh, th this past year during uh, COVID, uh, this COVID year, right. uh, about 2.7 million people came to Hammond Asset over that same time frame. So that was an increase of, of about 20%. Um, and that means that there is, you know, 20% more garbage, 20% uh, more people bumping into each other. Mm -hmm. You know, they did find, uh, unfortunately, they had to, um, you know, call the uh, environmental conservation police a lot more uh, for various issues. So, you know, there there are just um, lots of things that, that come along with being popular, but I, I've got to say, um, you know, for the most part, the parks did a really nice job holding up under a lot of uh, public interest. And that's a wonderful thing that we all had that outlet and places to go uh, when we needed to get out outdoors and away from all the anxiety and stuff indoors. Now, as far as the conservation police, what exactly do they do? So uh, there are about, I think, 40 or so environmental conservation police, and they are, you know, cross-deputized with, um, you know, state police and local police. So they could basically do any police function, but what they're typically called to do is to enforce, uh, you know, wildlife-related laws like um, if folks might be hunting or fishing uh, and, you know, going beyond the limits. Um, it, they also get called if, uh, you know, someone comes to a, a state park and is doing something that they're not supposed to be doing there and it's right. an unsafe situation. Um, you know, lots of different things. But unfortunately, um, you know, you can't always control um, you know, what types of behavior people are going to have. So they also get called into, you know, just like any other um, officer of the law to deal with, you know, domestic disputes and other things like that. So they are very busy. There are not enough uh, of them. Um, and although, you know, it's really important to, you know, give them a call when there is an issue, um, just know that because there are so few of them, uh, it, there might be a little bit of a, a delay. Now we talk, now we talked about the trails topics. Let's talk about the forest topics. Sure. So you know one thing that's on a lot of people's minds these days with regard to forests is is another issue that is related to it, which is climate change. Um, and you know I heard one scientist say, and I, I thought it was kind of well put that. Um, you know, our, one of the problems with climate change is you have all of this carbon in the atmosphere. Right. Uh, and one way to keep carbon out of the atmosphere is to hold it in trees, right? More trees and more carbon that they're holding, that's less carbon in the atmosphere to create mischief. Right. So there's been a lot of uh, study over the last year on uh, forests to see how they can uh, help us in taking carbon out of the atmosphere um, and uh, help us to, um, to get to a place where we're not going to have all of the issues that climate change is causing for us, right? We're, we're seeing more intense storms. We're seeing um, you know, different weather patterns. Uh, we are seeing, um, you know, forests themselves are having problems because of climate change, which seems kind of odd. Uh, you know, on, on one hand, um, because of the warmer weather, and you've certainly seen our uh, winter patterns kind of changing somewhat, and we have longer growing seasons right. because of climate change. So you would think that's good for forests, right? They, they grow for longer. 
Unfortunately, that also means that um, invasives or invasive plants that compete with forests are growing much faster. That means that uh, deer um, who are under a, a typical winter, um, you know, there might be more deer mortality, um, but because they're surviving the winter just fine, you have lots of uh, young deer uh, in, you know, in, when new forests are trying to regrow right. that are munching up all those little forest seedlings. So you have um, less forest regeneration because of climate change. Um, and uh, you also have these weird things that happen like uh, more frost damage to tree roots because there's something about snow that, you know, not, it's not just um, that it's cold, but it's also really good insulation. So if you have snow over, you know, uh, tree roots, that actually helps to protect them against really cold weather, interestingly enough. So we, we have a little less snow at certain times, which means that if you have less snow and then some really cold weather, you put tree roots uh, at you know greater um, greater risk of frost damage. So you have all of these different things that are uh, kind of interplaying with each other at the same time that we're trying to have healthier, more resilient forests to do something about climate change. So so there are a lot of different uh, recommendations that have been made, and and I was fortunate to um, work as uh, well volunteer as the chair of the forest subgroup of the Governor's Council on Climate Change. And this last year, we put together a report talking about the state of Connecticut's forests, what are some things that can be done to make sure the forests are more healthy and resilient and are better at uh, helping us to uh, deal with climate change. And there are some things that we hope will be put into place this next year in the legislature and beyond that are gonna help us move forward uh, and do a better job on climate change, at least on the land side. Of course, you know that there's a big um, issue with climate when it comes to you know, cars or uh, power plants or you know, other um, sources of uh, energy and, or uh, homes that put a lot of uh, climate change related gases out into uh, the atmosphere, uh, forests, Farms, soils, um, are uh, and wetlands are some of the natural ways that uh, climate change can be addressed. And there's a growing body of uh, evidence and support between what they, they call natural climate solutions okay. uh, to try to do something about climate. So we're we're really actively involved with the forest side of that. Um, and you know, I could probably spend. Uh, much more time than we have talking about these issues, but um, thanks for asking the question. There, there's a lot happening in the forest area. Now, as far as what's going on with the legislative session, as far as you guys are concerned? Yeah, so there are uh, always a lot of issues uh, in, in every legislative session. Um, you know, we are um, always trying to protect the passport to the parks, uh, right. to make sure that those funds stay intact um, and that the, the program that we all support when we register our vehicles um, is doing its job to make sure that our parks are uh, operated and maintained well with uh, sustainable funding. Um, we are, you know, so far the passport uh, in this legislative session has remained intact. It's okay. intact 
with regard to anything proposed in the governor's budget, but you know, I, and I'm looking for some wood to knock on uh, to <laughs> hope that, that remains to be the case. Uh, there's also been a few issues related to, um, I'll say more trees than forests in the legislative session. So for example, um, you know, when there's a big storm and people lose power, uh, one of the first things you'll often hear from, uh, you know, the electric utilities is, well, we had some trees hit wires and uh, cause an outage. We need to do something about that. Well, right. it's not as easy as that might sound. Absolutely. Because, you know, a lot of these trees are, um, you know, owned by private landowners. Um, mm -hmm. And we want to make sure that there's always a balance between, um, you know, if you have a tree in front of your home and uh, you want to, you know, make sure that it's safe for electricity, but also provides you the benefits that trees do provide, um, there needs to be some give and take. Right. If if uh, an electric utility might find, hey, the best thing that we can do from a you know keeping power in a certain area is to take down that tree. Right. Well, okay, but let's have let's make sure that we talk it through. Right. Let's make sure that I can uh, represent what I'd like to see come from this. So there are a number of issues around uh, trees and uh, electric utilities as well as trees uh, in high, highway um, medians uh, and along the highway that, you know, are often removed in the name of uh, safety. Yeah. But again, you know, it, boy, does it change the look of, uh, of our landscape. And also, um, if you're thinking about climate change and wanting to keep more carbon in more trees, again, you have to be thoughtful as you're removing trees. Uh, yes, remove trees that are hazardous, but if they are uh, healthy trees and can remain, you should do everything you can to keep them there. So um, issues like that are being addressed. We're hoping that next year, mm -hmm. one of the major recommendations in the forest subgroup report will be something that's considered by the legislature. And that is um, uh, trying to it, um, move Connecticut to being a no net loss of forest state. Uh, there are two states uh, on the East Coast right now that are no net loss of forest states, uh, New Jersey and Maryland. And that's uh, a policy that they've used to reduce uh, their losses of forest uh, and forest land and conversion to uh, developed land. And those um, states have had very positive experiences. We in December uh, did a webinar with representatives from those states to talk about kind of pros and cons and how might this work well for Connecticut. Um, and we'll be working as part of a, a task force to work out all the different um, kind of sub details for how to make sure this is done in a way that's uh, you know, fair and equitable and ultimately successful. Mm -hmm. And so we're hoping that by uh, next legislative session in uh, 2022, that'll be something at the top of the agenda. Eric Hammerling, would you mind sticking around for another segment? I'd be happy to, Pete. All right, we'll be right back. Hi, everyone. Al Roker here. As a guy with his own catchphrase, I appreciate that Smokey's only said, Only you can prevent wildfires. But I'm filling in because there's a lot more to report. Like when there are parched or windy conditions out there, you gotta be extra careful with things like burning yard waste. After all, wildfires can start anywhere, even in your neck of the woods. 
Go to SmokeyBear.com to learn more about wildfire prevention. COVID-19 has changed how we spend weekends with the girls. Now it's time to take the first step that lets us get back to brunching instead of late night munching. Before we can safely come together, we need the facts. As COVID-19 vaccines become available, you may have questions. Should I get it? Is it safe? Should I wait? It's okay to have questions. Now get the facts at GetVaccineAnswers.org so you can make an informed decision when vaccines are available to you. Welcome back to this week's edition of the Pete Mazzetti Show. I'm your host, Pete Mazzetti, sitting here with Eric Hammerling, who's the Executive Director of the Connecticut Forest and Park Association. Eric, welcome back. Thank you, Pete. Thank you, my friend. Hey, Eric, we were talking a little bit about in the first segment the passport, the passport to the parks program. Boy, that's a mouthful. I was wondering if we can maybe talk about that a little bit to open up this segment and exactly what it is and how it works. Sure. So, um, the Passport to the Parks went into effect uh, starting in 2018. Okay. And uh, what it basically does is uh, it allows anyone who has a Connecticut license plate, uh, you know, their, with their car being registered in, in Connecticut, mm -hmm. to get to state parks without paying at the gate. Um, and this is a huge benefit for all of us uh, who, you know, if you didn't have a season's pass, which was you know, 100 plus dollars, um, you would have to just on one visit to a state park uh, at a place like, uh, you know, Hammond Asset or, or Rocky Neck, uh, for one car, it would cost you $13 to get in. Um, and, so you, and, you know, as you might imagine, um, that was uh, leading to a lot of people deciding, maybe I don't want to go to the state parks because either I can't afford it or gee, that's a that's a lot of money just to go to to a state park. Okay. Well, now uh, we all contribute to state parks when we register our motor vehicles because, uh, you know, a vast majority, 90% of people who go to state parks do it in their cars. And right. that fee that used to be paid at the gate was always uh, called a parking fee. Yeah. So we all pay $5 a year per vehicle. And that fee goes to the Passport to the Parks Fund, which is for funding uh, operations and maintenance uh, at state parks. Uh, Altogether, all it winds up raising about uh, $20 million a year, um, which is not all of what it takes to man maintain and uh, operate 110 state parks, but it, it's a vast majority. Let's say it's 85% of, of what it takes. So we've almost, through just that $5 a person or per um, registration fee, uh, have made our state parks almost sustainable financially. Now that is such a big change from where we were before 2018. As you may remember in you know, 2016, 2017, um, it, not only were they uh, you know, actually losing staff and, and not hiring seasonals, but there were also four camp, state campgrounds uh, that were closed because they said, we just don't have the money to do it. Um, all we have is support through the general fund, not this Passport to the Parks uh, fund. Right. Without special funding, uh, state parks were getting uh, worse and worse managed and maintained every year. Um, and so it was absolutely necessary and critical. And we think so far it's been really successful. And of course, 
Uh, now, you, you know, you, you wonder, was $5 enough? Uh, because, boy, there are a lot of people coming to state parks. There are an awful lot of things that, um, you know, need to be done. But, but we're just really amazed at what that $5 per vehicle per year fee um, is able to do. And we're in a much better place today than we were just a few years ago. Absolutely. Hey, Eric, what do you think the state of Connecticut should do to protect the forest? You know, um, there are a, and that's a really important question to ask, and, and I'll, I'll add a little subtlety to it because, um, you know, uh, we've worked with a lot of people who are both, um, you know, people who don't know much about forests and people who are also professionals who work in the forests. And, uh, it, you know, uh, to protect forests, to people who uh, work in the forests, you know, the, the question is always protect them from what? Right. Um, well, the, when we talk about protecting forests, it's protecting them from being converted to not to a non-forest use, a parking lot, a strip, right. uh, something that's no longer providing the benefits that forests provide to society. Um, that said, there are also things that could be done with our existing forests that can be better managed to ensure that they are healthier, more resilient uh, to climate change, um, and long into the future can be uh, you know, sustainably managed. And so we, we're always trying to find that balance, but it starts with uh, making sure that forests aren't lost to uh, development. Um, and we're being really thoughtful about where we want our future forests to be and how healthy we want them to be. So that that's a... Uh, um, the, the other thing that I'll mention is it's going to also take more investment in um, land acquisition um, and providing incentives to forest landowners if we want to really protect our forests from being lost to development. Um, and so far, unfortunately, I think there's been some really great recommendations on things that we can do, but without the resources to um, actually implement those recommendations, um, we're not going to be able to do what uh, we, we all hope to. So I hope we'll get a, a little bit more aggressive on the budget side um, in really investing in, um, there's an open space and watershed land acquisition program that the state has. Right now, it's underfunded. There's a recreation and natural heritage trust fund to acquire land to become uh, state parks and forests and wildlife management agencies. Right. Uh, there was zero recommended in the governor's budget for uh, that important program. And there are about 150 landowners who are saying, you know what, I would love for my property to become a state park or forest, um, but I can't just give it to you for free. I'd like to sell it at market value. Mm -hmm. uh, and without any funding there to protect those areas, uh, they may very well be lost to development. So, um, you know, we have to be willing to invest and we have to be willing to um, think about the future. And I think we can get there. I'm an optimist. Uh, and that's why we're going to keep on fighting for that. Now, is there something in the legislature regarding forest right now? Um, right now, the, you know, the, the biggest piece is um, is what I mentioned in terms of, uh, you know, having funding for acquisition. Okay. Uh, you know, we're, we're also hoping that, you know, while I'm speaking about the state budget, I should mention we're really happy with uh, one aspect of the state budget, which is um, there is funding or bond funding for the recreational trails and greenways program. Okay. Uh, 
the governor's request, um, and we hope that will stay in there. Right now, the uh, trails program for the state is out of funding. Um, they gave their last uh, matching grant uh, in early 2019, um, and we've been waiting and hoping that uh, the governor will convene the bond commission to release those funds, uh, to put them to work. Funds are already authorized, but they haven't yet been released. Um, and so it's things like that um, where, you know, it's, it's great concepts, great uh, things that have been authorized to be done, but without the funding being released, um, we, we can't make progress. So uh, those, those are the big things on forests and trails in the legislature. And, you know, there are, of course, always, and, uh, pass, protecting the passport to the parks is uh, on the park front. Now, the parks have also seen a big increase in vi in visitation. How are they dealing with this? How are they dealing with the increase? I, you know, I, and I think it varies from place to place. Um, but you know, what they've they've tried to do is um, you know make sure to allocate resources where they need to be when they need them. But it's really tough when you're talking about the places that get the most visitation. Um, and it's really tough also when you have um, only uh, now, I believe it's about 80 full-time staff who are responsible for 110 state parks. Now they are helped by uh, almost 600 seasonal staff who from time, you know, for uh, about eight months, uh, eight to nine months out of the year are working in parks and forests and wildlife management areas to keep things together. Right. You might, if you can imagine how difficult it is each year to start with a new group of seasonals. You know, some people do um, stay for, you know, multiple years, but, you know, a, a number of new seasonals uh, each year who have to be retrained and uh, made ready for the season ahead, it's tough. It really is taxing on those uh, full-time staff. It is um, efficient from a funding standpoint. It, you know, folks who are working seasonal jobs get paid a whole lot less right. um, than full-time staff, but it's a hard way to run a park system. Um, and so when you have early in the season, when you have a lot of people coming into the parks, it's particularly tough uh, to stay on top of all the things that need to be done to keep parks safe uh, and clean and open for the public. So they're 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 you know finding their um, stride, I think, uh, since they've they've been through the passport to the parks for you know last couple of years. Yeah. But it's tough when every year things are a little bit different, right? Who would have foreseen? Uh, you know, COVID-19 and all the things that were thrown at us this last year. And who would have foreseen that the increase uh, was gonna be as dramatic as it's been in terms of people getting out to the park. So there, there's a lot to stay on top of. Um, we think that we know they're doing the best that they can uh, with the resources that they have, but the resources that, that, that they have are limited. Um, so it will always be a, a challenge. Now I've heard there's some controversy around what to do with the Seaside State Park in Wallingford. I'm sorry, Waterford, excuse me. And there's a bill in the legislature to do something. What's CFPA doing about that? There is, and yeah, thanks for mentioning that. That's a really important issue that, you know, I, I would imagine your, your listeners would be interested in. Sure. Um, now th there are, um, 
So there's 110 state parks. One of the most recently um, uh, um, designated state parks was Seaside State Park in Waterford, which uh, up until 2014 was a, um, a sanatorium uh, for uh, people who had you know, pneumonia. And uh, that was one of the ways back in the you know, 1920s, 30s, um, where people would get better with fresh air. Isn't it amazing how far we've come and we still know that fresh air is good for people. Absolutely. Well, as a state park, it's also an amazing place. It's not huge, it's only about 32 acres, oh. but it's right on Long Island Sound uh, with, you know, as the name suggests, right, Seaside. Yeah. It has unbelievable views. It is uh, right now being used by uh, fishermen and, you know, folks who um, wanna have that direct access to Long Island Sound. And, and actually, if you go back in, in uh, history, um, when Connecticut was first trying to st uh, protect land to be state parks, the number one priority was to protect land uh, on Long Island Sound uh, to make sure that the public had access to, uh, to the shore. So th there is that at uh, Seaside. At the same time, uh, there are also some historic buildings at Seaside, which um, were uh, d mostly uh, designed by the uh, famous architect Cass Gilbert, who's uh, kind of known for being the architect uh, behind the Supreme Court building uh, in DC or the Woolworth building in New York. So an amazing architect uh, with a lot of history. Um, and there are some big buildings there that have been the source of this controversy. You know, what to do? Do we keep Seaside State Park as a passive recreation place with buildings being uh, closed down as, as they have been? Or do we see uh, the opportunity to renovate those buildings and make them something uh, of value to the state? Or there have also been proposals in the legislature to, you know, maybe turn that into, you know, residential facility for individuals to have a nice place um, uh, in Waterford on, on the shore. Mm -hmm. um, as you might imagine, to do that and to retain access to the shoreline and to, for, to our mind, stay a state park um, with its public uh, purposes intact is a real challenge. And so it has been controversial. Um, and, you know, we always approach these issues knowing that, um, you know, people don't always have to be of like mind but we do think it's really critically important to make sure that this kind of once in a lifetime opportunity to have uh, shoreline access is not lost. Uh, one thing that I should mention is that when Seaside State Park was designated in 2014, it was the first shoreline park in Connecticut to be designated in the last 50 years. So this is not something that just comes along every day and we have to be really careful and thoughtful about how we proceed there, I would I would suggest that doing it through legislation um, is not the best way to do it. I, I think we need to support DEEP in making sure that it is a, it remains a state park, it is managed uh, well to its highest and best use. Um, and I would say, you know, support the agency that we task with doing that for all of our state parks and don't uh, try to have one state park go at it in a very different way, which could have some unintended, uh, but we would say dire 
consequences. So it's a big issue we're watching. And I guess next time I see you, Pete, I'll be able to give you an update on how it goes. Yeah, I know. I know. Hopefully we're going to be seeing each other soon. Rumor has it. <laughs> Rumor has it. Now, Eric, as far as with what's going on in the governor opening things to 100%, but you still have to stay social distance and still wear a mask, how do you think the beaches and the forest and park are going to look as far as that aspect of things go? Yeah, well, you know, I think some of the things that uh, were implemented this last year, I think we learned a lot from. Um, you know, there there were things like at our beaches yeah. where they said we want to uh, make sure that there's 15 feet between uh, blankets okay. out on the beach. You know, and and why is that? Well, we want to make sure to have you know six feet of uh, distance in case someone's walking in between two blankets, and we want to have some time, some space for them to be able to safely walk between and maintain that distance. Well, as you might imagine, not everyone knows what 15 feet is. Uh, most people don't bring uh, you know a, a measuring tape with them to the beach. Exactly. Um, and so there are things that can be done with, you know, flagging and otherwise to make it more apparent and obvious for folks what appropriate distancing is. Um, it's also difficult um, to require that people who might be going to the beach um, for a tan uh, are, you know, go for a, a tan while wearing a mask, right? Mm -hmm. There's something about that, that doesn't seem to fit. Okay. So one thing that, you know, is on my short list of things to, to try this year, if, if necessary, is to try to make it cool to have a tan on half your face. Um, <laughs> and, you know, you things, things like that, we'll, we'll, we'll have some fun with it. But, um, you know, I, I think it's really a wonderful thing in Connecticut. And, and I, I hope folks are really proud of this, that, um, you know, we're one of those the states that chose early on uh, that we're not going to close these places to the public. We're really just going to trust people to behave um, safely. And I think there's, uh, you know, our trust and faith in people was uh, mostly borne out. Um, I think people have been um, recreating safely in our, our public areas. And I do think that this year, even if we um, have, uh, you know, an, another spike of uh, COVID and, you know, or, or a variant or something happens, we'll know how to respond because of how we adjusted to it this last year. And I think, you know, we're, we're going to keep encouraging uh, the state to remain open for people to be able to get outdoors and to do that safely. Um, and so I think that's what's going to happen again this year. Now, as far as once the weather gets warmer and pe more people are out at the beaches and out at the parks, and how do you think that's going to look? Um, well, I think, you know, um, it's going to look probably a lot like this last year uh, because people are still uh, maybe not feeling quite safe enough to travel uh, abroad or out of state the way they, uh, you know, may have uh, in the past. So that means that during the summertime, some of the folks who may have gone elsewhere are going to be here and are going to be looking for things to do. So I think it's going to be a very busy year once again for the parks. I think they'll probably do some similar things. 
uh, like they did at, uh, you know, Hammonasset and other parks this last year, such as, um, you know, reducing the parking uh, availability by about half to try to keep the crowds down a bit. Um, you know, there, there will be, um, and, and maybe because we're in a slightly better place with a, a bit more knowledge than uh, where we were last year, and we have the vaccines that are, um, you know, hopefully uh, by June, July, uh, everyone will have uh, at least had a chance to have their first uh, vaccination shot. Mm -hmm. You'll see things opening up uh, more and more, so there will be a bit more capacity available in parks um, so that we can withstand all the people who, who want to get there. Um, and, you know, we also did find this last year, and this is something that maybe the state can adjust to, is that uh, when the fee was no, no longer an issue to be paid at the gates, right. we found that people weren't staying all day at the park. You know, it, it used to be, right, you pay your $13. Well, I'm going to get my money's worth. I'm staying all day. Exactly. Um, now, you know, you, you're not paying that fee at the gate. So people will stay for a few hours and be like, hey, that was great. Had a great time. And now I'm off to have lunch somewhere or exactly. something else. So because people are coming and going a bit more frequently, that, you know, maybe our parks will be able to um, have extra people come because they're not staying all day. So there are a lot of things like that that we're going to keep adjusting to. Um, and I think that, you know, the state is um, learning as we go. Um, and, you know, we'll see. But I, I think it's going to be another uh, very busy year for the parks. Absolutely, absolutely. Especially once the weather gets warmer and the water temperature gets a little bit warmer because it's probably a little too cold to go swimming right about now. Ooh, it, it is. I mean, I, I have a little extra body fat, so um, I, can, I can withstand it, but I, I wouldn't uh, recommend it for most people. No, no. Now, have you, now with what's going on, I'm sure you've gone out in the hiking trails or gone to a state park. What do you think? Yeah, well, you know, j just like uh, with the state parks being, you know, we're expecting... Uh, trails are going to continue to get uh, record record high usage. Uh, you know, we we know of a lot of uh, and and it's interesting because um, one thing that we do is we we work with a number of outdoor recreation retailers, okay. uh, and they reported that you know whereas a lot of businesses, um, you know, like restaurants, movie theaters, you know, other uh, gathering places had a really tough and and tragic year. Uh, outdoor recreation retailers had an amazing year. Um, and if you think about this last year, there were times where you couldn't find a bike anywhere. You, exactly. know, you couldn't uh, find a, a canoe or a kayak or think about the different types of outdoor uh, recreation gear that just was selling off the shelves. Well, you know, there are going to be a lot of people this year who have their, you know, recently bought uh, bike or canoe or kayak uh, that yeah. they're going to want to Put to use again so you know we think a lot of people are going to be getting out there again and on the trails you know you have uh you know all the people who bought their uh you know their hiking boots and um you know their their walking uh sticks and you know all the all their uh, paraphernalia they're they're going to be going out again too uh, i'm i'm thoroughly convinced um and that's a, that's a great thing it makes us feel really good because one of the things that we 
do as an organization is we maintain trails, right? right. Uh, we have amazing volunteers that we work with to maintain trails. When people are out and using those trails, it feels so good, especially uh, when they're doing it in a you know courteous way. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, as far as being on a trail, you obviously want to wear your mask and maintain your six feet. Yeah, well, and you know, I, I think um, you know one thing that I um, really try to do is to be um, respectful of those around me. Um, absolutely. You know, and, and like I mentioned, uh, you know, people don't always know what uh, what six feet is, just like they don't know what 15 feet is. Um, exactly. And I bring a walking stick with me. Uh, okay. Not that I um, use it as a weapon, but <laughs> a way to just show, hey, this is about six feet. And, you know, um, and, and I make sure that the people that I'm walking with, um, if I'm walking with a group, are doing it safely. So, yeah, yes. Absolutely wear a mask, we stay distanced, um, and we always uh, yield the path when others are coming down the trails uh, toward us so that we can keep that distance. Of course, we're, we're also, you know, being courteous with if we bring anything in, we take it out with us, you know, et right. cetera, et cetera, leave no trace. Um, but, um, you know, I, I'm definitely seeing that that ethic is starting to catch on. And we hope as people get out this year, um, they're really gonna enjoy it and not be frustrated when um, someone's a, a bad actor, but people are doing it safely. Absolutely. So we've got a little bit more time left. What else do you want to tell people about the CFPA and what you guys do? Well, I, I would just say that, you know, if you're looking for a cool place to volunteer, uh, to help out uh, in particular, either working on trails or if you're interested in um, getting involved as an advocate, contacting legislators about various uh, pieces of uh, legislation that affect, you know, forest trails, parks, uh, and the outdoors, you know, get involved with CFPA, you know, go, go to our website, which is ctwoodlands.org, okay. you know, think about joining the organization. Uh, you know, we certainly depend on support from individuals um, we do get some grants, but it's mostly individuals that uh, support our organization. So get involved. Um, and, you know, I'm always looking to hear from folks. So if you have any questions, you know, feel free to, you know, look me up, contact me personally. And, and I would just say, I want to recognize one person who has been a terrific volunteer for CFPA, uh, not on the trails, but uh, on the communications front. And that, um, some guy by the name of Pete Mazzetti, who I've uh, heard of him, say, uh, has been a terrific <laughs> and we really appreciate you, Pete, for all you do. Thanks, Eric. Thanks a lot. I'm Eric Hammerling. We're out of time, so I want to thank you for coming down. Hopefully, we'll see you again soon. Pleasure. Look all forward right. to it. You got it. On behalf of Eric Hammerling, I'm Pete Mazzetti. Thanks. Good night, and we'll see you next time.